Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The second Sunday after the Epiphany, John 2, 1-11. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In our Savior, dear Christian friends, God instituted marriage for the temporal and eternal well-being of man. While the first man was still in paradise, God wanted to establish the first family bond. God then said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And after God had completed his work, he himself led the first bride to the first bridegroom. He himself pronounced the benediction on this first pair. David says to every pious married couple, You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Psalm 128. If we question those who have been married, what would we find? Ultimately, And unfortunately, not a few regretfully think back to that hour when at the altar of the Lord they so joyfully gave the promise of faithfulness until death. At first, they hurried to make the vow like that of an indissoluble bond of love they thought was so lovely, so blessed. And scarcely was it made when, lo, aversion, regret, and despondency filled their hearts. The honeymoon was hardly ended, when it seemed as though their sweet dream was shattered by a bitter, painful awakening. They think, the wonderful dawn of the first days of my marriage, I interpreted as the beginning of a beautiful, happy life. Alas, it was only the forerunner of gloom and sorrow. If countless married people do not say it, they at least think, oh, if I had never taken this step. Oh, if I could only return. Oh, if I could only be free again. Now my life's happiness is sold forever. Tell me, how come? First, Satan often meddles without a person suspecting it. Many could still be so happy, but they consider their marriage an unhappy one. Marriage is God's ordinance. Satan, this enemy of human happiness, hinders the happy progress of this blessed institution. He often attacks Christians, concealing the good things and the blessings of God which they enjoy or could still enjoy. Even a Christian has to arm himself daily with God's word and prayer, that he does not become unthankful and misunderstand the fatherly guidance of his God in his marriage that so many have not yet found peace of soul in Christ 
is undoubtedly another cause for so many unhappy marriages. They seek in marriage happiness and rest for their empty hearts. Whoever seeks this in marriage seeks it in vain. Even this state can never satisfy the yearning heart of man. A person must be saved in Christ and his grace. If a person has acquired this treasure, then his married life will also become a quiet, peaceful, and happy one. Yes, the less a Christian seeks this happiness in his marriage, but in Christ alone, the happier his marriage will be. Finally, many do not know from God's word how they should begin, conduct, and view their marriage. Many begin and conduct it without God. Hence, they can expect to be unhappy and unblessed. On the other hand, others who do enter this state with God think that a happy marriage has no troubles. They want their spouse to be free from weakness and frailties and their married life without cross and trouble. They do not bear in mind that in this life nothing, nothing is perfect except God's word and grace. They do not bear in mind that no one has ever found a perfect spouse. They do not bear in mind that in every other relation, they would have to bear still other, if not the same, frailties of their spouse. They do not bear in mind that as the other partner must bear their frailties, they are obliged to bear his. They do not really bear in mind that here, God guides us from imperfection to eternal perfection. From frail union to earth to perfect communion in heaven. From suffering to joy. From trouble to heaven. From tears to eternal laughter. However, my friends, marriage is far too important to skip studying it in the light of God's divine word. Since today's gospel on the marriage of Cana invites us to view marriage as God sees it, let us accept this invitation. John 2, 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited, invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The gospel reading of the marriage at Cana gives us occasion to direct our attention to the state of matrimony. Marriage appears to be a secular matter and not for the church to consider. But we must consider that for a Christian, all earthly relationships have a higher meaning. That there is a relationship between the kingdom of God and his soul's salvation. 
The Word of God must shed its light on marriage. A Christian is very much in need of the instruction on marriage from God's Word. Of course, Christians should be in the world, but not of the world. They should do earthly things, not with an earthly, but a heavenly mind. Perhaps many suppose that instruction in marriage is profitable only for a part of the Christian congregation. But he who is not yet married can be kept only through the word of God to enter it some day in a way pleasing to God. And he who never marries will find that everything in the word of God benefits all, if only they pay attention to it. Hence, permit me to show you the dignity of marriage in light of God's word. God's word makes two things clear to us how highly God honors marriage, and how men must honor it. We pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, by the institution and preservation of the holy estate of matrimony, you seek the well-being of men. You have revealed your gracious will for this relationship in your holy word. Give us grace to ponder and learn to know this important subject in the proper light. Show all unmarried young men and women how this important union may be made in your name. Show all who are fathers and mothers how they may use this state to your glory and their salvation. Yes, by your holy word, grant now that there may be even more pious families and family altars, that all wounds in our households be healed, all self-made misery end, and all unsuccessful marriage successful. Lord, do this, for you made light out of darkness, good out of evil, blessing out of curse. May goodness and faithfulness meet each other, and uprightness and peace kiss each other. Hear us for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Bridegroom. Amen. Reason can, in some measure, recognize the honor of marriage. Even reason tells us that without marriage, all mankind would sink to the level of animals. On the other hand, through this indissoluble union, the whole human race has received countless blessings. If there were no marriage, the whole fallen human race would be given to the lusts of the flesh in all uncleanness. Marriage, however, plants decency, modesty, and chastity as nothing else can. Furthermore, no creature on earth is dependent in so many ways and for so long a time after his birth upon the help of others as is a human being. If there were no marriage, millions of children would roam the world as orphans, and most would soon die. But marriage unites father and mother in love, and both hold out their hands to their beloved children. Marriage is the foundation of all other necessary and beneficial estates. Without marriage, there would be no union of men into nations. Without it, no state would last. Nowhere would there be any permanency. But marriage ties one to families, brings about honest relationships, makes home dear, and holds entire races and families together. Finally, they expand into nations. What would the world with its thousandfold miseries, with its selfishness, with its faithless friendships and associations be like without marriage, with its sincere mutual love of spouses, with its faithful loving father and mother, with its tender love of children? Without it, the misery of this world would be inexpressibly greater. Marriage brings a very natural, ardent love into the bitter world and brings to people 
who at first are often strangers to one another, a wonderful inward friendship that shares each other's miseries and joys. It is clear, even reason must recognize and admit that marriage works an inexpressible wholesomeness upon society. Consequently, we also read that even pagan writers praise marriage as the most beneficial of all institutions. Yet the real dignity of marriage we see correctly in light of God's word. Now let us hear what today's gospel has to say. Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, come to seek and save that which is lost. First 30 years he lived in unnoticed quiet. Finally, he entered upon his office of Messiah and began to gather about him a group of disciples. At this time, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, probably among the relatives of Mary, the mother of our Lord. Since Jesus had just appeared in Galilee, he and his disciples were invited. And what did Christ do? One might have thought that he who had come to found the kingdom of God, a kingdom of heaven on earth, would have declined the invitation. No. He accepted it and honored this wedding, not only by his gracious presence, but to reveal his glory, he did his first miracle there. And what was the miracle? Did he heal a sick person? Did he awaken someone from the dead? No. Since the wedding guests lacked wine, he revealed his glory by miraculously turning water into the most delicious wine. My friends, this most wonderfully revealed the dignity of marriage. We see four points hidden from reason. First, marriage is a holy institution that God himself instituted. Second, it is a state that God himself sustains by his omnipotence. Third, it is an institution whose necessities God himself provides. Fourth, it is one in which God wants to reveal himself to men. An unbeliever considers marriage either a burdensome limitation to his roaming, unclean lusts, or at best, he views it, as do the honorable heathen, as a beneficial human institution. He sees in marriage nothing holy, nothing divine. He considers it a subject for jokes, and he elicits from him at least a smile if one speaks of holy matrimony. But the Word of God discloses that man did not institute marriage. It is not dependent upon the laws of the different states. It is not a human invention or a mere traditional arbitrary custom. No, from God's word, we see that as soon as the all-wise God had created heaven and earth and the first human beings, he also ordained that the human race is to be propagated by one man and one woman in an indissoluble union until their death. According to God's clear word, the Lord instituted marriage. The Most High Lawgiver says, You shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, Matthew 19. And so it is that before God all fleshly union of the unmarried is adultery. God has threatened to punish this sin, as well as the breaking of the marriage bond, with nothing less than eternal damnation. We read in the letter to the Hebrews, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, chapter 13. And in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ, chapter 5. 
Oh, what a holy, inviolable ordinance marriage is. That it is a divine institution. God has also revealed by having preserved marriage in the entire world until this hour. How many useful ordinances have been made. However, in time they have fallen and other laws have taken their place. But marriage has lasted until this hour for almost 6,000 years among the nations of the earth. Many wicked people who have striven to live after their lusts have often used their power, cunning, art of persuasion to dissolve the laws of marriage. There have even been lawgivers among the heathen who have striven to make a bestial living together lawful. But these states have either soon fallen of themselves, or those who were misled saw such great ruin descending upon them that even the most barbarous heathen have always returned again to marriage. As there has been no nation under the sun on which one cannot find traces of a faith in God, so there, so there is no people so uncivilized among whom one does not find traces of the knowledge of the dignity of marriage, despite all the abominations and filth in which they live. Tell me, my friends, since we see that all men have fallen so deeply, since we see how they have kicked over the traces and have sought the unrestrained freedom of their lusts and desires, what power so manages the world, even darkest heathenism, that the law of marriage could not be completely abolished? Why has no human lawgiver in the long run ever yet succeeded in overriding the marriage law? Why has this law been so preserved for all times among all nations, despite all the sound and fury of the unclean spirit and his apostles? Is anyone so blind as to call that blind chance? No. The Most High Author of this law must himself have most ably provided for its preservation. God has with indelible writing, deeply engraved in souls and consciences, the very law of keeping marriage holy. Yes, marriages are consummated on earth, but they are made in heaven. Even in the marriage of the godless, God has his ruling hand. For the one, the spouse chosen without God becomes the scourge of God. For the other, a tool driving him to God. Solomon therefore says, A prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 19. God reveals that marriage is his institution because he, in a faithful and fatherly way, provides for its needs. What Christ, according to our gospel reading, did for the wedding at Cana is an example of what God does for all marriages. When, they all, la when all they lacked was wine, not something necessary, only a means of comfort and cheer, the Lord could not see the bridal pair suffer embarrassment very long, but quickly used this opportunity to reveal his glory by miraculously supplying what they lacked. This is what the Lord always does. Millions of even poorer couples enter marriage with such empty hands that they often do not know where they will find bread and fuel for the day after the wedding. But do they not all find what they need? Yes, do not the children of the poorest day laborers often bloom like roses, considering their frugal and coarse food, while the only child of a rich glutton fades away sickly and pale, despite nourishing an elegant fare? 
Must not parents who have reared many children to adulthood confess that according to the proverb, the children do not sit with them, but they with the children? Must they not with David ask, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth? Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Psalm 127. Is not this faithful concern for the needs of the household a way by which God honors marriage as his institution? But God does still more. As Christ went to the wedding feast at Cana to reveal his glory through a miracle, so he to this very day reveals himself through marriage to all who do not willfully close their eyes. Without mentioning that God has appointed the parents as the natural teachers and providers for their children, and has arranged to erect a family altar in every house, without mentioning that often the husband has led the wife, or the wife the husband, or the children the parents, to Christ, where could I find time if I wanted to show you what a wonderful school of manifold experience marriage is? And thus, what a wonderful school of faith, love, humility, patience, gentleness, and all Christian virtues marriage is, with its weal and woe for all who do not stubbornly resist God. Far be it that marriage, as the anti-Christian papacy teaches, is a hindrance to the service of God and godliness. No, it has with its joys and sorrows become for thousands a way on which they prospered in the knowledge of Christ or were kept and advanced in it, a source of temporal and eternal blessings. See, this is the fourfold honor with which Christ has honored and still honors the estate of matrimony. God himself has instituted it. He has preserved it. He provides for those who enter it, and finally, he makes it a school of faith and love. The second question arises, how must man honor this estate? Much could be said on this question. Today, I want to call your attention to three important points which are seldom perceived even by Christians. The first point to which I want to direct your attention is this. According to God's word, parents have a great right over their children. Not only did parents have the right to hire out their children until their marriage to other masters and use their earnings for their own needs, as we read in Exodus 21, not only did parents have the right to declare null and void the oath which their daughters made against their will or without their knowledge to God, as we read in Numbers 30, not only did parents in the time of the Old Testament have the duty and power to give husbands and wives to their children, as we read in Deuteronomy 7 and in the examples of the patriarchs, but also in the New Testament. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 that the children should not give themselves, but the parents should give their children in marriage. What do those children do who, without even asking their parents, secretly become engaged? Yes, even marry. They push their parents from the throne on which God has placed them. They slink away from their parents. They take God-given honor from their parents. They rebel against the homes and the families God appointed power. They force strangers upon their parents against their will, who are to be their children, heirs, and relatives, and thus they dishonor the holy ordinance of marriage. Their secret engagements are null and void even though they, are, they sealed them with a thousand oaths. 
and if they are married even without their parents' consent, such children have entered marriage against God's good pleasure. They're going to the altar, as often happens here among Christians, to the justice of the peace, was a forbidden way, a way of sin, and if they have done it wantonly and knowingly, a way of ruin, curse, and damnation. If such couples who married against the consent of their parents do not repent, that is reason enough to be damned. Their marriage must be without happiness and blessing. I remind you of a second way by which man is obliged to honor the institution of marriage. God has revealed in his holy word that he considers it an abomination for certain persons to marry. These are all who belong to our closest blood relatives. It would take us too far afield if I were to name all the persons whom God's word has forbidden to marry. You can find the list in Leviticus 18. I admit that many suppose that the law of forbidden degrees of relationship belongs to the Old Testament law and no longer concerns us Christians. But this is a gross error. These commands and prohibitions do not belong to the ceremonial but to the moral law. God says in Leviticus 18 that the heathen have defiled the land by the transgression of these commands, which God calls an abomination. That is why they should be driven out of the land and exterminated. In the New Testament, John the Baptist says to King Herod, It is not lawful to, for you to have your brother's wife. Mark 6. The Apostle Paul declares that marrying one's stepmother is an abomination such as not even known among the Gentiles. Therefore, you who want to honor God's holy marriage ordinance, see to it that you do not misuse the freedom of this country and against God's word marry into your blood relationship. If you are in doubts whether this or that blood relationship is permitted or forbidden, consult the scriptures, consult Leviticus 18, and talk it over with God-fearing people who are experienced in the scriptures. Woe to him who, through incest, knowingly contracts a make-believe marriage, or knowingly remains in it. If such do not repent and tear again the bond that God hates, it would be better if he had never been born. There is one more point to which I would direct your attention. Many think that marriage is first concluded when they have consented at the altar or before the civil authorities. And so it often happens that those who were betrothed break their engagement by their own choice. They should know that whoever is betrothed to a person with the knowledge and consent of his parents has already concluded the marriage. He is indissolubly bound to his betrothed. The angel calls Mary the betrothed bride of Joseph, his wife, though he had not been brought to her home, and warns him not to leave her. The marriage ceremony does not first establish the marriage before God, but it only confirms it as a legal marriage before church and state. Hence, of what are they who are properly engaged with the consent of their parents guilty when they faithlessly and thoughtlessly break their engagement? Before God, they are adulterers, just as well as that couple which, after years of marriage life, gets a divorce. Even he who knowingly frees such a rightfully betrothed person breaks the marriage with him. What God has joined together by the holy word of consent, no man should separate. As baptism takes place as if it is done according to Christ's institution, 
and no creature in heaven or earth can annul it. Thus marriage is also established if it is concluded according to God's institution by the mutual oath of marital faithfulness until death. And no person or angel can separate what God thus joined together without great frightful sin. Now, go home and ponder what you have heard today from God's word. May God himself awaken you to receive it in a godly and virtuous heart. Thus you will bring forth fruit in patience, and the holy estate of matrimony will be kept holy among us also. Our marriages will be blessed to the glory of God and our own and children's welfare. We will finally come where the children of God neither marry nor are given in marriage, but will be like the angels of God in heaven. God grant that for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, praised and blessed in all eternity. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life.